0: can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out.
1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets known. I'm Daniel Shea, your host for today's interview with Bradley Alger, professor emeritus of physiology at University of Maryland School of Medicine. His book, Defense of the Scientific Hypothesis, from reproducibility crisis to big data, was published by Oxford University Press last year. Imagine the plumber, first day on site, who'd never held the wrenches or the fasteners and supporters she'll need to fit the building with pipe. Imagine the surgeon, first patient under the knife, who'd never practiced his hand at the incision and stitching he's about to make. Imagine the air traffic controller, who'd never operated a short-term alerter, never sat in the tower, never even as much as set foot in an airport, but was going to work her first solid hours-long shift bringing planes in and sending planes out. You'll be nervous by this point. Want to turn panicky? Imagine this, too. Imagine the biomedical researcher. Imagine the chemical engineer. Imagine the material scientist, imagine the leader of a clinical study, and imagine each of them at their equally important, equally vital tasks of advancing our knowledge of the world and applying that knowledge to your and my lives. But imagine that not one of them either fully understood or even received training in their plumber's wrench, their surgeon's technique, their controller's short-term alerter. So what I'm asking is that you imagine the scientist was not used, or does not use correctly, the hypothesis. The foundations of knowledge shudder, unfathomable sums of funding burn, a publishing industry veers, public trust wanes, and most of all, if you're a scientist yourself, your current work might well be bust. Why all the doomsday scenarios? Why the high rhetoric for that lonely Greek word which, in all the pages of a long article will, if at all... Take up the space of but one single sentence? Why should a hypothesis count for nearly everything when scientists have their databases, their analysis, their statistics, their precision measurement, and their publications? Because. Because that lonely Greek word is the foundations. Because the hypothesis is, literally, according to the Greek, the putting, thesis, under, hypo, anyone's entire knowledge base and data set of any research project at all. It's always good to know the Greek. It's far, far better to use the hypothesis. And this precisely is the cogent and comprehensive view taken by Bradley Alger in his book Defense of the Scientific Hypothesis, From Reproducibility Crisis to Big Data, Brad covers his topic really from every base the origins of present day scientific thinking and karl popper the rugged landscape of probabilistic thinking the evolutionary and psychological science to the human mind and so to the scientific mind the importance of logic the importance of criticism the importance of skills training from early ed through to on the job and above all the true use of that lonely greek word the true relation of the hypothesis to inductive reasoning to discovery science, to routine bench work, to the publications that make or break a scientist's career. Bradley Alger, in his magisterial study of the hypothesis Misses No Detail, covers really the whole thing, and I think he'll agree with me that the purpose of the book is best served when you and anyone else who cares about science reads Defense of the Scientific Hypothesis, and then also takes the occasion to think hard about what this thing means to present day research practice and present day research findings. This thing, in Brad's own words, called the scientific method and its most valuable tool the scientific hypothesis. So let's begin today's episode, Bradley Alger and Defense of the Scientific Hypothesis. Brad, welcome to Scholarly Communication. Well, uh, thank you very much, Daniel. Uh, that
0: was a wonderful introduction. I'm uh, pretty much still awed at the magnitude of the subject that you've, you've laid out, and I'm not sure we can cover all of it today, but uh, it'll be a pleasure to discuss it with you.
1: Yes, I uh, have to uh, probably tip readers off. They'll quickly see when they uh, go to the site uh, after listening to um, our interview that it's a long book and it does cover very many areas that are related to, and really all of them highly relevant to, the hypothesis. The best way to get the most out of this is clearly to study it for yourself. But we're going to do our best today to. Bring people inside of uh, the basic ideas of uh, what the book has to offer, and 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 one of the things that strikes me um, in in the book is the philosophy that's in the book (laughs) uh, your banter with the philosophers is is really at at times great fun Uh, while we're getting into the the thicket of all the ideas surrounding what truth is and what science is and so on you treat the philosophers viewpoints with all due respect uh, and you improve your arguments by giving uh, the criticism there ample space but still you remain aware dare I say of the two personality types the philosopher who will gladly make a career out of turning one concept around and around and the scientist who wants to get back into the lab. (laughs) Um, So I suppose what I'd like to ask is, um, as a neuroscientist, how did it feel to sort of get a quick minor in philosophy under your belt? And (laughs) what was it that you found out about that? And what is it that you think that other scientists should be thinking about in the area of philosophy?
0: Uh, well, uh, I, I'm not sure uh, that I really did enough to to get a minor in philosophy, uh, but you're quite right. Uh, it it became clear to me uh, that, uh, and only very late in my career, that I really didn't understand the basics of some of the most fundamental topics that I was uh, dealing with or thinking of what I was dealing with. And uh, in order to, to understand that, I had to read a lot of philosophy and realized that many of my colleagues were in the very same boat. Uh, that there is uh, this rift sort of between philosophy and science, and scientists typically don't read any philosophy. And indeed, it's, it's an oceanic topic where we can't read, we can't be knowledgeable in all facets of, of philosophy. Nevertheless, uh, there are key concepts and key ideas that scientists really do bene- would benefit uh, from knowing better if we if we did understand them. And so w- what I did in the book was try to try to focus on these, try to find these and focus on these and emphasize the ones that would be uh, most useful to us uh, and still be fairly true to their uh, philosophical roots uh, without at the same time becoming uh, bogged down uh, in the in the situation. So so this is a book, uh, as you pointed out, that's really not about ph- uh, philosophy. Uh, it's about science and scientific thinking. Uh, but there is uh, considerable overlap in the beginning, and and actually, a, a certain threads run throughout the book that uh, rely on these basic concepts.
1: I think uh, that's that's a very good point. It's uh, I think that's probably also where the humor is coming from. I mean, you, you're you're going to have been aware yourself, being a scientist, uh, that uh, many scientists will have you know, a bit of reluctance to get into the, some of the philosophical, you know, boxes that you open for them. In fact, I think the first uh, page of the first chapter says that one of the early readers felt like, um, well, it's a bit heavy on the philosophy. <laughs> so I, I think it's very much worth making uh, clear to listeners that um, the philosophy is utilized to the end of understanding the science.
0: Right. Well, that's, that is that uh, is my my purpose in in the banter with the philosophers is just uh, give and take. I mean, I've read a bunch of philosophers who are not at all hesitant to tweak scientists and our our neglect of uh, what they regard as and and often are right as as important principles. But, uh, but um, I wonder maybe maybe I can give you an example of the kinds of things I do, so our, our listeners will have a a better idea of the scope of this thing. Uh, would that be okay?
1: Yes, sure. That's I think well, that's a great place to start.
0: Well, it it actually started uh, for me. I began thinking of this. Uh, Uh, following on an interview that you had done with uh, Josh Simmel and also uh, Carl Ritz, who are editors of a journal, Soil Biology and Biochemistry, which I had never read or been aware of. And so their comments, uh, which showed a lot of overlap between their field and mine, which is neuroscience was particularly interesting to me. And at at one point, uh, these editors mentioned that one of the problems with the uh, papers that they would receive uh, it would be that, that occasionally an author would would uh, state a hypothesis but on close inspection that would turn out to be just a prediction uh, and that also also happens in in my field and uh, and they uh, recognized that was not quite right um, but as i thought about it i realized that that distinction between hypothesis and prediction really is key to understanding so much uh, of the topic in this book that i'd like to just Uh, analyze it for a minute. Let's just think about it. Um, A hypothesis at its base is an explanation uh, for some phenomenon, some puzzle, something in nature you've observed. And the explanation that it proposes tries to say why things are the way they are. tries to account for uh, that puzzle. Now, a prediction, on the other hand, is just a statement, a forecast of something you think will happen in the future. Uh, maybe as a result of doing an experiment or an observation or something like that. But a prediction is fundamentally non-explanatory. So hypothesis, explanation, prediction, non-explanation. The reason that's not just a semantic difference, I mean, you might be tempted to dismiss that as something minor, but that's really a profound mix-up because if one doesn't distinguish between hypothesis and prediction, it implies that you don't know what one or the other or maybe both means But more importantly, you don't understand the relationship between them, and the relationship is a firm, logical one. We deduce predictions from hypotheses. We say a hypothesis makes certain predictions, and the critical point is, again, this logical one. If the hypothesis is true, the predictions it makes must be true. They have to be true. If the hypothesis itself is correctly understood and the prediction is a valid one. Now, the reason that's important is because scientists' reason as follows. If we have a prediction that follows from a hypothesis, we test the prediction, which we can do. If the prediction is false, we can conclude the hypothesis is false. It doesn't work the other way around. If the prediction is true, we can't say that the hypothesis is true. But this is the way we accumulate knowledge in science. We we rule out hypotheses that we know to be no good, and we retain the hypotheses that we think may be true. We've tested them, and so far as we know, they're still true, and that's the basis of our scientific knowledge. Now, this, this probably all sounds quite abstract, so, so let me give a, a, a sort of homely little example. You're, you're walking through the woods near your house, and you come upon a lake, and you see it, you notice there are a lot of dead fish in the lake. Well, you're also aware that not too far away, there are some heavy industries that are belching clouds of smoke of something uh, up into the atmosphere. And you've, you you form the hypothesis that the puzzle that you've encountered, that is the dead fish, can be explained by the idea that acid rain resulting from the industrial pollution caused by these factories is responsible for the death of the fish. That's your explanation. The puzzle, dead fish. The explanation, acid rain. Now, if you, you think about it for a minute, that's a really complicated idea, this acid rain. Uh, we'd have to know a whole lot of things. There's no one measurement we can do to tell whether that hypothesis is likely to be true or wa- or, or, or false. We'd, we'd have to know what's what's going up the smokestacks from the, uh, from the factories, what's going on in the clouds, what's the chemistry up there. Uh, how is that affecting the rain? Is the rain acidic? Is it acidic enough to change the pH in the lake? Are the fish in the lake sensitive to that level of acidity? And so on and so forth. There are many, many things we would have to know to know whether or not there's really anything to that hypothesis. On the other hand, we could extract predictions from that hypothesis, which we can test with with straightforward measurements. For example, that hypothesis would probably predict that the lake water should be acidic. It should be, uh, be acid. If we if we do what we, we certainly can do, which is get a sample of the lake water, we put it in a meter, we do the test that we would do to measure acidity, and we do determine is it unusually acidic or not? That's the prediction. Now, in this case, if it turns out that the lake water is not at all acid, then the acid rain hypothesis is most unlikely to be true. On the other hand, if the lake water is a bit acidic, we've still got a lot to do. We'd say, well, that's consistent right? That, that information is consistent with our hypothesis. So the hypothesis might still be true, but we've got a lot of work to do to rule out other possible reasons for the fish, fish death and, and some of the other things I mentioned about fish biology and so on. So what, what's important here then is to realize that we've gone from this, what looked like a semantic issue, uh, that is the difference between hypothesis and prediction to now having an insight into how science is done, uh, what the purpose of science is, and, and I should have emphasized that the purpose of science, is, as several of your guests have noted, is not just to gather a bunch of data about the world, not just to get a bunch of numbers about how things are, but really to understand, to understand nature, to understand the world. And this hypothesis and its relationship to the predictions and the tests that we do are really key uh, to this increment uh, of accumulation of knowledge. So uh, the the, the story uh, already, just has, has, as I would argue, has gone a long way just by grasping these two concepts. But actually, there are ripples that go far beyond this, and we don't have to discuss them all now. But once we've appreciated the idea, we've accepted the idea that a hypothesis is an explanation, we can use that understanding to see our way around a lot of other problems that are persistent in the discussion of science nowadays. We, will, we, we can look at the difference between statistical hypotheses and scientific hypotheses. And although they occur frequently together, they're really quite different concepts. Uh, We can consider uh, another problem, which is quite pernicious, it's it's frequently alluded to, and that is uh, how to understand science which doesn't seem to have a hypothesis. Uh, Is that non-science or or something that's somehow invalid or violation of Karl Popper's rules and ideas? And, And the answer is no, it's not, and we can talk about that. Um, so, so there are lots of, of things that we can understand just by grappling with the two uh, most fundamental issues, I would argue, in the book, which is hypothesis and prediction.
1: Yeah, and, 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 and that comes out very clearly in the book and also in, in your uh, example just now, too, for listeners who haven't been able to get to the book yet. I think what really strikes one is this idea that inside of one hypothesis is too much information to know. Just as you were saying now with the acid rain, I mean, there's so many things to test to be sure, or to, to, to in any way be sure that this could possibly be a true hypothesis. In fact, you mentioned Karl Popper. Um, his um, whole philosophy is that we actually never can be sure, <laughs> we never, we never will have that information, that full, complete information to be sure of a um, hypothesis truth, and, and and therefore he he takes the route that you were just explaining of falsifying instead of trying to prove, and that's all well and good. I think one of the things that comes out. Um, Quite clearly in your example, and as you were just talking right now, is that we have on the one hand, and this brings us also back to some of these fundamental terms that you explained so that we have a base to work on throughout the book with all these examples that show how relevant all this is. We have on the one hand these, as you say, semantic issues, which are really a matter of deductive reasoning. They deal with words, as you say. And please correct me if I'm wrong, but on the other hand, we've got the hypothesis, which is a pragmatic side of things. It's explanatory, and it's genuinely, genuinely interested in the world, not the word. Well,
0: that's that's exactly right, and that's, that's a very important uh, point. You've touched on a couple of things. Um, you mentioned Karl Popper, and he is the central... Uh, He's, he's sort of the patron saint of, uh, uh, of philosophers among scientists anyway. He's the one that if we do know anything about, we know something about his ideas. And as you as you mentioned, one of his uh, key ideas is what's called in philosophical, philosophical terms, it's, it's known as fallibilism. And it just means uncertainty. That at some level, we are always inevitably and unavoidably, by the laws of physics and, and everything else, um, we're, we're essentially forbidden. We will never be able to be certain of all of our hypotheses and all of our information. But Popper, as one of his students, uh, Brian McGee called him, is the philosopher of action. So the problem that, uh, that, that Popper deals with at, at bottom is, is look, how do we gather real information about the empirical world, uh, assure ourselves as much as possible that it's true, because we need that information in order to take action. We need to do things in the world. Uh, scientists, uh, the court of last resort is the empirical world. It's what's really out there. It's how things really work um, in order to use technology and and understand uh, how, to, how to make valid predictions about what's going to go on. Uh, we need practical, useful knowledge. And, and that's what Popper offers us. He, he gives us a way of achieving or approaching or trying to get to truth, which is what we want, we want a true understanding of the world in the face of this fundamental uncertainty, which again, because it's, it, it's rooted in the laws of nature, means that we can never truly fully understand uh, nature in its, in its deepest depths. And so we'll, we'll, need, to, we'll need to have a, a, a method that'll let us try to get there, We'll need to accept that we won't ever be there, and we'll need to keep keep trying because, again, we need to take action. And that's one of the greatest differences between science and philosophy, of course. Again, science, the court of last resort, is the real world. Philosophy, uh, well, I guess it's, it's what the mind can encompass, the way uh, people can think about different things. And, and that seems to be, as far as I can tell, to be limitless. Um, but but at any rate, it's, it's this distinction between needing to take action in the face of a deep and pervasive ultimate uncertainty. How do we, how do we go about science in those conditions?
1: Yeah, and, and, and the uh, maybe to wrap up the uh, philosophy and, 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 and science sort of dichotomy... I think what you've just said there about philosophy being what it is that we can possibly imagine is then one of those essential distinctions between the realism of science. Because in philosophy, what you can think goes, whereas in science, it seems to be what you can actually put into the world as somehow being, you know, it's actually a phenomenon there it,
0: goes. Exactly. exactly.
1: Mm-hmm. Um some of these issues do seem, as as you mentioned, to be sort of hairline differences. You know, um, I think you've made quite clear that prediction and, and hypothesis is, is is no longer a, a distinction that anyone should you know take lightly. But there's lots more in the book that are uh, w- where two words are very finely kept apart from each other, and it would seem perhaps on the outside that some people might think, well you know, let's just get down to work. Maybe this doesn't really matter quite as much as you're making out to be. But then you quickly realize that these are actually huge issues and so much depends on them. That uh, it, it put me in mind in other areas and in other disciplines of, as the sort of fundamental and foundational questions that come up in, say, political science r- around democracy, in the educational sciences, around the idea of learning, or even just the general notion of happiness, practitioners in these respective fields don't necessarily immediately see the benefit of spending their research time on those larger issues. And yet what they're missing, and this picks up a little bit of your terminology, is that these are their implicit, sometimes their deep implicit hypotheses uh, on top of which everything else is built. So pausing to consider them is really their responsibility.
0: Well, I I think that's I think that's quite true, and it is at the same time it's very rewarding. It's not only responsibility, but it's positively beneficial because, uh, at least from the point of view of a scientist in science, uh, making some of these distinctions enables us to realize uh, really important uh, ways in which uh, the the very meaning of the word truth uh, matters. It enables us to communicate much more clearly because we can. We can separate we can distinguish among some of the, the fuzzy concepts that are out there that are actually causing problems in uh, scientific thinking and scientific reasoning and scientific uh, processes uh, in, in a way that is really quite productive. So uh, it's a responsibility, but it's a rewarding one.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. And and I think we we will get uh, maybe a bit later in in the interview. uh, I I think we will probably serve our listeners well if we cover some of the uh, fundamental ground first, but we can probably get to some of the explanations as as to why it might be that people haven't discovered that pleasure that's involved in considering these things and also the benefit. Uh, But one thing that did spring to my mind, we might just entertain it for a moment, is, is Kahneman himself, who is somebody who you spend time on in the book, might actually diagnose this as As a situation where you have a lack of feedback or where the feedback is sparse, vague, and too far in the future for the effects to be imaginable. This is one of his basic ideas as to how it is that we can actually, you know, let's say... Think about something that's abstract in concrete terms, and it may be that something as 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 sort of luminous, but uh, uh, that that f- that just sort of is fleeting, like truth, which as you, as you say is 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 what the scientist is after. Spending long times thinking about that, the next study you publish, it it doesn't show up in it, not immediately anyway.
0: Right. Uh Kahneman is a very important influence. and and you touch on several things that are, are, are that underlie this this problem that I think scientists often have in, in sort of understanding our, our work. Uh, one of them is the class of things that are uh, have been discussed by Kahneman in his his uh, books, and they're really quite brilliant. And one of one of the uh, the, the central ideas is that our minds are, are doing things that we're not always aware of we have a tendency to not only jump to conclusions, but formulate more detailed uh, responses to things in an automatic sort of unthinking way. And one of the the things, the messages that we get from uh, Kahneman as well as uh, others uh, who think about critical thinking is that it really requires an effort. We have to take a special effort uh, to think clearly, to think rigorously about what it is we're doing. And if we don't, we're likely to fall into uh, bad habits. Uh, And another feature or another factor in this uh, lack of awareness, it seems, on the part of scientists is simply our educational system. And I know we're going to uh, probably maybe we'll get into that more in detail, but but I would mention that uh, uh, and I speak from deep personal experience uh, as scientists, we are woefully uneducated uh, in many of these matters of thinking. Uh, simply some of the lessons of the cognitive scientists, such as Kahneman, but also the, the matters of philosophy that I try to touch on. We just don't know about it. And without knowing about it, we really can't uh, take uh, advantage of some of, the, some of the benefits that we would get of rigorous thinking. Uh, and finally, I'll just mention that there are other forces out there, and I allude to a number of them, in which uh, we are actively uh, told, or are there other, other authorities, even scientists, who have written books who, uh, that criticize uh, not only the scientific method, but the hypothesis itself. And I think the net effect of all of this is, is a good deal of confusion uh, and lack of information on the part of scientists about how actually to overcome uh, some of the things that, that uh, Kahneman uh, so clearly lays out in his, in his work.
1: I think the the what you say there about the confusion, the the cloud surrounding the idea of hypothesis, even the evaluations going on, it's good, it's bad, it's it's neutral. Um, or even the entire uh, chapter that you spend on the reproducibility crisis. I mean, these are two solid examples where the book shows that it's worth considering these fundamental issues because they bring us to better understandings of what these are. Is it a crisis, right? Um, can we even talk about the hypothesis, leave it or take it? I mean, in a way, no, because otherwise we're not doing science. I mean, the, the, these these very practical matters come out so clearly and they're earned through stopping to think, stopping to reflect, as, as uh, stopping to ponder. Um, I, I would like maybe just to pick up two or three more of these fundamental terms because they I think for listeners, I know for me, it turned out to, be, to mean things that uh, we hadn't expected. And I'm going to expect there's also plenty of scientists out there who maybe didn't realize that objectivity is, let's say, intersubjective, that levels of organization of nature are everything as to how true or false uh, your ideas about it are, and, and so on. Uh, maybe, maybe just pick up those two to, to begin with.
0: So those are really interesting ideas, uh, and I'm glad you pointed them out. Uh, It was a revelation. uh, If we talk about objectivity uh, first, for example, it was a revelation to me to uh, learn from, and I think it was Lorraine uh, Daston and and Tuhi's book, uh, a massive study of objectivity to realize that the notion that we have of objectivity, which many people will say is the bedrock idea of science, it's what's uh, underlying uh, the the credibility of science and our ability to do science was a relatively recent development. What objectivity actually meant uh, only it was only isolated as a, as a concept sometime in the eighteen hundreds, and uh, it, it's it's something that has been evolving as as scientists tried to to grapple with the problems they had in communicating and deciding uh, because ultimately the understanding is of the real world, a common world to all of us, and having scientists who are in disagreement with one or another, were, was was really a bad thing, um, and the, the notion which is which is certainly championed by Karl Popper was that ultimately the basis of our objectivity, what we call objectivity, is this intersubjective agreement, which just means the ability of scientists, uh, in one way or another, to reproduce uh, each other's work and to confirm or not confirm uh, whether uh, a prediction is true uh, or not. The um. I forgot. I'm sorry. I beg your pardon. I forgot the second point you mentioned. Objectivity was I, I, one. It, it,
1: it would be um, levels of organization of nature, but 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 I actually would like to follow right up. Um, we can come to it in a second. I would like to follow up on uh, what Papa has to say about into uh, subjectivity because it is so fascinating and to realize that you know that is what objectivism is 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 quite <laughs> quite mind blowing, and yet you see how uh, it relates to the entire. Um, industry of consensus and communication in science. Let me just just quote, if I might, one one part in the book where you talk about Popper in connection with this subjective testing. You write there, for Popper, observations must be robust and repeatable. Repeatability is crucial for two reasons. You can't test a hypothesis about a one-time observation, such as a miracle, because you don't know if it will ever occur again, let alone subject it to tests. And repeatability is important because it allows for, and here we have it, intersubjective testing. That is, more than one person can make the observation. And intersubjectivity is another definition of objectivity. If science is to be objective, then its observations must be repeatable. Now, I just need to share my marginal note there that I made to myself. And please excuse my French. I wrote, voilà, the origins of science communication. (laughs)
0: very good Uh, I think that's uh, that's exactly right and science communication uh, as you and I both agree is absolutely critical for the progress of science uh, for for those for those very reasons we have to uh, arrive at at some common understanding Uh, the the uh, philosopher of science Naomi Oreskes uh, has written books and uh, and explains that the real basis the ultimate basis of our uh, belief in scientific ideas, certainly our public belief, is this consensus among scientists—that is, an agreement over broad swaths of a uh, scientific community—that certain facts really are the way they are, and and this is certainly uh, one very important idea. The um, the. Uh, Sorry. Again, I've lost, uh,
1: sorry. Yeah. It was the, uh, uh, levels of organization. Yes. Of, uh, yes. Of okay. Nature. Back to yeah. the,
0: all right. So, so that, that is another very critical, uh, notion and it's the source of, 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 confusion, uh, in, in many ways. So for example, if we take one of the current uh, big problems in the world, which is climate change, we have, uh, people who are the great majority of climate scientists say, indeed, uh, climate change is, is real. And, uh, and other people will say, no, that's a hypothesis. And, uh, it's been subjected to tests, and it's it's not been uh, un, unequivocally shown to be true, and so on. And, and the question in general, then is is how do we how do we think about truths? Is if the, if it's if it is correct to say that ultimately we're uncertain about all truths that science finds? What what can we do in the world? How how do things? How do we think about things? And this idea of levels of analysis in science and levels of understanding is is really key to it. Uh, If we, for example, take a simple example, uh, 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 a simple uh, instance, which would be Newton's law of gravity. Now, Newton's law of gravity, at some level, at the level of the the real heavy-duty physicists, the people who think about uh, the smallest uh, dimensions of the atom, the highest speeds near the speed of light, the dimensions of the universe, will tell you that, well, Newton's law of gravity is is just not true. It's false. It's been falsified. By Einstein's uh, discoveries and theories, and in the many, many tests and confirmations of uh, apparent confirmation so far of his ideas, um, and yet on Earth, Newton's laws work perfectly well. If you want to, in the old days, they would they would track the 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 uh, the arc or the distance uh, that a cannonball would go. But but for all ordinary uses on Earth, Newton's laws work perfectly well, and and that's an example of the the notion of the levels of analysis of, of science. What we need to know in, in, in order to take action, and I will classify that as a branch of applied science, versus the deeper, the ultimate knowledge, that basic science, pure science it was used to be called, but it, that term's not used much anymore, um, which really seeks the ultimate understanding. And, and the confusion between those things uh, often causes a lot of problems in practical terms in the public understanding of science and so on. Uh, and so it, it's uh, this the idea that something might be quite adequate and perfectly true at one level of analysis and yet ultimately false uh, really is an important uh, revelation.
1: Yeah, and, and, and putting into that network of the applied and the basic side, the level of uh, organization at which you're looking at the problem and so on, Gives us, uh, yeah, that 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 view as to the non-black and white of science, and and when you put on the back all of this onto the background of the intersubjectivity of objectivity, right? That there's a consensual side to what knowledge has been created or what advances we've made. Then you start to realize that we're in a very rigorous methodology for finding out knowledge that must accept huge limitations on what it might achieve.
0: That's right, and, it, and it's important. And I, th- I think that can be put in, in, a, in a really nice context, again, by emphasizing this difference between applied and basic science. And many people have heard that difference, and they say, yeah, yeah, but I think to, to really appreciate the significance of it, we have to realize that there are really almost two different standards of truth that we have to keep in mind when we think about science. Uh, something can be true, as I mentioned, Newton's laws, uh, true enough at one level, uh, and yet ultimately not true, and and yet that's okay. If we look, for example, a current good example is is the COVID vaccines. We have this pandemic ravaging the world. The uh, applied scientists, the medical scientists, went out and within a year uh, developed several vaccines that are ninety five percent effective. Well, this is an amazing triumph of medicine. That. Is a, that is a good enough level of knowledge of information that we can put it to great practical use and get a lot of benefits out of it. Now, from a pure scientist, a basic scientist's point of view, however, I mean, there's still a lot to be desired, right? We still have 5% of people that are not helped by these vaccines, and we don't really know why. And a basic scientist then would not be satisfied with a 95% effective va- vaccine, wonderful though that is, but we continue to say, well, why can't we get to ninety-nine point nine nine percent or even a hundred percent? I mean, in in a world, just from a practical point of view, in a world of eight billion people, five percent, I believe, is four hundred million. That's a lot of people. So this is still is a big problem that a basic scientist will want to get to the bottom of. So once again, keeping in mind the different standards, the different objectives of different kinds of science can go a long way to helping to clarify a lot of the uh, public debate that we we see about science
1: yeah the benefits just go on and on and, and in fact one of the things that really struck me while reading through the book and 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 right now i'm thinking in particular um, where you lay out for us what uh, makes the hypothesis good what is the good what does the good hypothesis look like which might be worth uh, talking about in a moment but the Thing that struck me while I was reading that was when simple was defined, the the idea of parsimony and keeping things uh, having no extraneous parts involved, and you call up again. And by this point in the book, I think we're around page one hundred and fifty or so. You call up again the misnomers and the misrepresentation misrep- of this key concept, and. There, again, I see all the other misnomers and misrepresentation of other key concepts. Prediction was another one that you've just given us, for example. And I, and it made other ones are statistical hypothesis or hypothesis. Yeah. And it just started to make me wonder. I thought, wow, OK, how much in science goes wrong unnoticed? How much goes right unnoticed? And who is it that can tell?
0: <laughs> well, that, that is a great question. Um, how much goes wrong? We, uh, we really uh, are trying, the, the concern, much of the concern about the reproducibility crisis is really focusing our attention on that very problem, how much goes right or wrong. And, and uh, as I discuss in the chapter on reproducibility, this is, this is a highly complex question because reproducibility itself, that term, that's another term, which, which really needs careful parsing, careful definition before we can say one way or another, to what extent is reproducibility a problem? To what extent is it not? And in partly this confusion, this lack of agreement among scientists and, and wondering what exactly has gone wrong, uh, actually hinges on a simple definition. What do you mean by reproducibility? What is actually reproduced? And as I go through in the book, there are actually four different meanings for the word reproducibility. Uh, two of them would certainly fall into anybody's category of reproducibility. And two of them, although they're often lumped in, have nothing to do with reproducibility per se. They are, they actually have to do with the the idea that, one, that somebody publishes a hypothesis and somebody else t- publish, uh, tests that hypothesis in a completely different way. And if they disprove the hypothesis, that's not a reproducibility problem. That's the way science is supposed to work. So some of these difficulties in figuring out what's going right and what's going wrong, again, have to do with, uh, I think, your favorite topic, with it, which is, Communication of knowledge, which is just how clearly, how explicitly, and 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 how in, and and um, unambiguously we are, we succeed in communicating with each other what it is we found, what it is we think, uh, and so on
1: as you were just speaking right now and 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 this is something that you this is a method you use again and again through the chapters and and it r- really reaps rewards this careful definition I mean the first thing that we confront when we confront the hypothesis in its own chapter is nine different definitions that you could tease out from <laughs> all the literature <laughs> and, 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 and and figuring out for us yeah which ones have any sort of validity which ones can we knock on and the, it's not hollow and what, while I was listening to you right now, while you went through your, uh, this uh, idea of the reproducibility, reproducible, what does that mean? A careful definition is necessary. You said there's a lack of agreement between scientists, and and, and, it, and it, it jumped out at me. Yes, obviously. I mean, that must be your mission. That must be the mission of communication <sighs> in science to strengthen the intersubjectivity of what it is that we're talking about, because with, without agreement... The, the, we have nothing, don't we? I mean, we, the, 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 there's there's empty space there.
0: Well, I, I would generally agree. But I would I would uh, say that there are there are uh, in, in addition to the agreement, um, I, I, we can look at the uh, the general problem that uh, uh, Naomi Oreskes, uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, has has dealt with. And that is the, the general question of why we trust science. And that, of course, uh, includes scientists. Why do scientists trust each other? And so the ability to achieve intersubjective agreement is, is certainly one uh, important uh, uh, qualification or category. Um, the other, I would say, however, is, is to, or it's, a, it's actually a nuance which is uh, related to that, which is the idea that science is inherently competitive. And scientists, <clears throat> excuse me, scientists want to be right But they are competing against other scientists who also want to be right. And when their ideas conflict, then there's a great competition to find out whose idea is more likely to be correct. And partly our assurance that science may be reliable uh, is actually related to this idea of competition among ideas.
1: (laughs) This reminds me of the... LTP wars in uh, the reproducibility crisis, where you uh, lay out in, in one of your informative sort of side note boxes, uh, how it is that not reproducing science actually leads to advances. Uh, I, again, one of those phenomenal twists where you realize, oh God, okay, there's far more to this than I realized.
0: Well, that's right, and that that gets to a really really deep problem. This is especially uh, in biology, and I and I give several examples whereby. whereby reproducibility, in some sense, is not the highest standard. And what happens, in other words, is that one group will publish a result and someone else tries to reproduce that result uh, directly, and we'll call this direct reproducibility. They try, this is the classical kind of reproducibility where everybody tries to do exactly what the other person does. But for various various reasons, including the great uh, complexity and, and flexibility of biological systems, Sometimes this doesn't work out. So one group publishes a result, another group tries to reproduce it and fails. Now at that point, there's there's a choice. What do we know? We know the following. The first group might be right and the second wrong, the second right, first wrong, both might be right or both might be wrong. In other words, the f- the failure of reproducibility while in principle it's it's important, uh, doesn't really give us enough information to know what to do. And this is why I say that at that point it's not uncommon to say, well, okay, tell you what, what's more important than simply mechanically duplicating the previous results, getting the same numbers from the same manipulation, let's look at the underlying hypothesis, that is, the understanding that we thought we were achieving by the first um, by, by the first uh, 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 report, the, re, the original report, and since we're going for understanding, let's examine that hypothesis, and we'll test it in a different way, rather than worrying so much about the precise duplication of results and getting the same numbers, let's see if the underlying idea, the explanation, is likely to be valid or not. And, and that's the sense in which I depart a little bit from, from the orthodoxy about how important it is to reproduce results. Um, that's important because uh, while we can argue that a true result must ultimately be reproducible, as, as Popper said, it is certainly not the case that every reproducible result is necessarily true. Again, the underlying idea, the hypothesis, is the key to the thing. And it's also true that even if reproducible results are obtained, um, that that's not the end of science. People will still go along and test the idea in at more length. And that's why in that little sidebar, I I went through an actual uh, 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 history of science. It's particularly important in, in neuroscience. And it was quite interesting to realize, after a while, the, the two major competing groups uh, were, were not just mechanically duplicating each other's things. They were saying, OK, fine, let's go and test the other idea, our idea and the opposing idea, in, uh, in, in more rigorous and more informative ways. And it was, it was just a wonderfully exciting chapter in neuroscience, but it, it also had a lesson, I think, for science in general.
1: You mentioned that uh, in the reproducibility crisis, there's um, this issue of, of definition of what reproducible uh, reproducible actually means, and mentioned that uh, communication will play its role in, in in reproducibility as well. One of my interests, and you're very right about that being one of my interests, because I I must say that in reading this book, now. It's quite possible I have a bias here because I tend to relate things back to writing some way, shape or form. <laughs> but it, 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 it seemed to me again and again that most everything that you say about the hypothesis related in very many direct or nearly direct ways to the way that scientists write. Let me just throw out a few of the examples that came to my mind as I, as as uh, from the book that, that that brought me to this thought. For in, for instance, the good hypothesis um, works under constraint; it has this hard to vary characteristic about it, and essentially, that's a good line of poetry. <laughs> Move one tiny little word anywhere else, and you've ruined everything. Well written is hard to vary. Um, another thing that came to mind is. When you talk about the hypothesis in connection with plot lines and story as being, in a sense, what people would consider then the blueprint as to what it is that you are trying to aim for in your study, the whole organization of it. And lastly, the idea of rejecting or revising hypotheses. I can't say enough how much every time those words came up in connection with thoughts in science, testing in science, and papers in science. I was in the world of editing.
0: Right. Those are uh, the, the role of the of the hypothesis in facilitating communication. And, and by the way, I want to say I completely agree. I, I've heard you say several times that a scientist must be as good a communicator as he or she is a researcher. And I really couldn't agree more. If you I don't care how brilliant your data are. If you don't succeed in uh, explaining them clearly, and laying them out, and making them accessible to other people, uh, you're you're really going to be uh, penalizing yourself at very least as a scientist. I, I first of all I have to start off by uh, by uh, disavowing credit any uh, credit for the concept of hard to vary, which I which I blatantly uh, stole. I think I acknowledge it uh, from the physicist uh, theoretical physicist uh, David Deutsch, who has a wonderful book on. The beginnings of infinity that I, I review in some detail. He, he and I slightly diverge, but he, he wants to take science into the non-empirical realm, and I'm pretty much rooted in the empirical world. Um, but but his uh, thinking about science in general uh, was quite brilliant. The the idea though uh, of the hypothesis as 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 a story structure, as helping to uh, organize a narrative, to lead a reader and 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 other competitors even through your reasoning uh is i think unparalleled it's funny that i've talked to some scientists who say they don't use hypothesis because they want to tell a story in my view is it's exactly got it backward if we think about clarity in communication what makes for a good uh, say a literary short story right it's got an introduction a complication a resolution um a, a love story Boy meets girl. Boy loses girl. Boy finds girl. Or, or some—I'm sure there's some more PC way, <laughs> politically correct way of expressing that nowadays. Uh, but the but the ideas are still the same. That there is an underlying structure which helps the reader and and guides the reader. And a hypothesis uh, really is, I think, unparalleled in its ability to do that. It, it's it's got an almost a built-in narrative. We start from a, a, a problem. There is a proposed solution we extract predictions from it, and that can lead us through the entire paper. And we, we can do what I think in the literature uh, is called signposting, right? We can, we can present some uh, the rationale for doing some test. Our hypothesis predicts X. We tested this hypothesis in the following way uh, by testing this prediction. And, uh, and so on, we, we go through that test, we do these measurements, whatever. Our hypothesis also predicts this, that we've tested this prediction in the following way. And you can lead a, a reader uh, through the paper in a perfectly logical way, and with this benefit of the signposting, these little things, that little phrases you put in to connect logically the one section to the other, uh, you, you lead through in a natural way and get to uh, the discussion part, the conclusion part of the paper, and it, again, the conclusions almost right themselves. You just draw all the threads together and and uh, and, and see where you are. Have you, uh, do the results consistent with your hypothesis? Are they partly consistent? So you would maybe have to revise it. Maybe you have to reject that part of it. Uh, ideally, in an, in an ideal paper, and we haven't mentioned this, but it's one of the real advantages to a hypothesis, is that if you use hypothetical thinking, uh, you try to come up with an explanation uh, for the the problem. In other words, if we go back to my initial little uh, image of the the dead fish in the lake, I latched onto the idea of acid rain. Well, that was one possibility. Uh, Another equally valid hypothesis might have been that it's the nitrogen in the, the runoff from the fertilizer from the nearby farms. That's a completely different hypothesis. It would also explain the dead fish, but it leads to a completely different series of predictions that we would also test and one can imagine another uh, thinking about it hard and coming up with another explanation for the problem of the dead fish in the lake and and in in a in a paper in which we tied this together we would we would refer to each of the hypotheses point out they make different predictions test those predictions and at the end we would in addition to being able to revise or or modify or reject which is strictly speaking if we've written our hypothesis explicitly and carefully we should reject it and consider uh, re revising or re- rewriting a new hypothesis, or we can simply be uh, using the evidence we've gathered because it's again tightly linked to the hypotheses themselves to decide between hypotheses or among hypotheses. If we're clever enough to think of a whole lot of them, um, so the hypothesis again is is it's just a wonderful uh, tool for for making the transmission of scientific reasoning, scientific evidence and information available to the readers. And, and by the way, since it does make, in, in a way that asking questions or curiosity or some of these other things that we hear about, in a way that is available to anybody, because again, of the logical relationships, anybody is, 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 is able to go back, examine our reasoning, examine the hypothesis and say, yes, this works or no, it doesn't. And again, that's not so clear when someone's just asking a series of maybe connected, hopefully connected questions. uh, The the structure is just, it's simply not there, and that makes it harder for the reader to follow. And and I would say just parenthetically, this is one of the reasons that I I strongly advocate explicit hypotheses, that is, making your hypothesis explicit, stating it explicitly. And indeed, I do a literature review that I refer to, and it, it turns out that The great majority, or not the great majority, but but a a significant fraction of papers, even if there is a hypothesis in there, are built around the unstated hypothesis. I call it implicit, right? You can, if you're an expert in the field, you can kind of fight your way through it. You can figure out why uh, the experiments. Uh, follow one another. Occasionally, in those papers, a prediction will pop up just out of nowhere. I mean, it's, it's as though you're in the city and, and you look down at the sidewalk and you see a little flower come out. You think, oh, how nice. Where'd that come from? Um, the, the prediction doesn't obviously follow from anything, but so you have to go back and and figure out uh, the logic of the thing. So, the papers built on implicit hypotheses really are uh, no problem for the experts in the field. The problem comes when Science is being communicated to the slightly broader audience. The educated lay people who know something about it, who want to read your paper, want to read the field, they have to work much harder to get the message that you want to uh, convey. So, again, explicit hypotheses are a great way to communicate stories.
1: There's so much for me to follow up on there. I'm going to follow up on the end (laughs) and hopefully find my way back to some of the others. But this idea of the explicit and implicit hypothesis, in which case we literally mean written into the text or not written into the text. Um, The the question is there. The hypothesis statement, if it's not in the form of a question, is there. And um, what you say now about... The deep insider, the person who knows this particular branch or sub-branch of the research figuring out what the hypothesis must have been, is a really interesting point for me because this is something that you do in, in many other places of the book. You take uh, things that are done, the conventions of science, and you try to figure out sometimes why they're done, and you show also some of the shortcomings of it. Um, this this extends into the area of uh, statistics, where you talk about the current people uh, value method and uh, give us wonderful insights on that. I'm I'm probably going to just shelve that for a moment because I'm interested also what you have to say about uh, word choice, questions of, well, is it confirm? Is it consistent with? Is it suggest, corroborate, and so on? Um, and, And these seem to be really in a sense, minor matters, but people um, who think that, uh, you know, these different words are actually telling us something different about the world will quickly notice that are um, not minor matters at all. This is actually what everything turns on. This is the entire pivot. And I, I guess what I would like to perhaps open as, as a brief uh, point of discussion here is... Why is it that the conventions in science seem to rule so much? As, as you just said, this idea that, okay, well, we don't state our uh, hypotheses uh, openly. And, and, and what you found in, in your literature search has been uh, confirmed by uh, linguists who use corpora to um, investigate uh, research articles. And they find, for instance, in biology, they have one of the lowest rates of explicit hi- hypothesis statement of any other field. So this is a kind of the norm, in fact. And it just makes me wonder why it is that um, – yeah, why, why you would rely so heavily on convention when you could – when the expectation, in fact, and when people talk about scientific writing is the precision and the clarity.
0: Well, that itself is a significant theme that runs through much of the book, as you know. And, and that is I spend a fair amount of time trying to figure out exactly the answer to exactly that question. Why are we not more uh, open, clearer about our ideas when we have them? And I can't really uh, answer that, but I, I tried in a number of ways to to get around that. Um, actually, I, it came to the end. It, it touched on this idea of a of a culture of evasion, which is a, is a phrase that I took from Matthew Syed. In his uh, nice analysis of, of the way that uh, different industries, the medical industry, the medical uh, profession, and the airline industry respond to uh, errors or mistakes. In, in other words, I think that a lot of the reason that we do that, some of it anyway, uh, is really related to, um, uh, to a desire not to be too clear. Uh, you say, well, that's, that's bizarre. And uh, I, I, I can give you an, an illustration that is not in the book uh, but it, it was uh, just an anecdote, but it, it's repeatable. And that is, I was talking with someone once and, um, and, uh, about, uh, about the virtues of the hypothesis and stating it explicitly. And they said, well, you know, there's a problem. If you state your hypothesis too clearly uh, and it's too explicit, the reviewers will latch onto it right away and immediately begin generating other predictions from your hypothesis and you'll you'll get tied up in the review process uh, interminably, and therefore it's it's best not to be too clear. It's it's best to try to insinuate your hypothesis into uh, your work, uh, sort of weave it into the fabric of your narrative, but uh, but s- somehow, in other words, smuggle it in, uh, but but not not uh, run the risk of um, of stating it. Um, so that that's that's one kind of reason. An- another one, I think has to do with this idea of negative data, which I discuss in the book. Because, we're, uh, because we really don't think so clearly about the hypothesis, and particularly because we don't think about having multiple hypotheses, we don't appreciate the value of falsifying a hypothesis. We don't, uh, we don't appreciate the extent to which we've learned something. If we have a good, a valid, a meaningful hypothesis, not some trivial thing, but a meaningful hypothesis, if we can do critical experiments that show quite clearly that that hypothesis is wrong, that's a positive advance in knowledge. And yet, that appreciation for negative data uh, is simply not there. And so people see negative data as basically failures. Uh, You know, the the experiment didn't work. Uh, Well, no, no, I would say if if you can really tell us that that idea is wrong, you have made a contribution. Now, why isn't that more widely appreciated in this review? This, I'm afraid, refers again to the issue of what makes for publications. We have have the issue of peer review, so we have reviewers and editors, and they, to a large extent, are the gatekeepers of what actually gets into the literature, and so scientists always write with an idea of what will get by the reviewers, what will satisfy the reviewers of my grant or of, of my paper. And if those reviewers seem not to like uh, negative data, if they, if they uh, uh, regard hypotheses as something to be avoided or, or somehow dangerous or aversive, um, then that will shape uh, what goes on. There are, of course, other reasons for some of these conventions. I mentioned uh, earlier on that as a group, we scientists are, are uneducated uh, in many ways about these formal logics, so to some extent, we don't do a better job of communicating. We latch onto these other kind of softer, flabbier, fluffier sorts of ways of expressing ourselves um, just from convention. It's what other people seem to do. Uh, if we, we analyze it, we think, well, maybe those people don't do it because they never learned how to do it, and this whole thing uh, perpetuates itself. Um, I mentioned the opposition to some of these things, which uh, if if I were to cite some of these uh, famous uh, people, I. I I can cite the work of Stuart Feierstein, for example, who's written very influential books on ignorance and failure in science. And while there's a great deal to like in his books, and, and I agree with, he's a, he's a brilliant guy, um, he, he goes out of his way to bash the hypothesis and the scientific method. Well, anyone else reading that is is then, I think, going to want to avoid those things, despite the fact that uh, they might really help communications. And so where the conventions come from and why we don't, um, how we latch onto these things which are suboptimal for communication is is unclear. But I think there are a lot of factors that go in. And uh, in, in part, my book was uh, hoped to sort of, by bringing these things out, uh, make them something that we could all grapple with and, and maybe deal with in some ways.
1: That's a method I truly believe in, is just making <clears throat> transparent and helping people become aware. It's really one of the bases of Mentoring and in and, and writing instruction, uh, not really telling people use this list of words, but eliciting from them through more or less Socratic uh, dialogue, what is it that you? What are the words that you need? And choose them. Yeah. So I mean, this 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 awareness raising is it's the only way I think that is going to work. So I, I I certainly applaud that, and I, I think some of your uh, you offer us many very. Uh, possible uh, explanations as to why conventions rule in the way that they do and um, scientific writing, scientific communication generally. And I, and I think all of them are going to have their validity. I think the gatekeeper um, uh, explanation uh, certainly has a lot to tell us. Um, I don't think I've talked to any publishing scientists yet uh, or helped any publishing scientists yet who didn't have in mind uh, his or her reviewers. So, I mean, that in itself tells us that... Um, just like when uh, people in schools teach to the test, it seems like some people are researching to the test. The test being get past the gate. <laughs> yeah. Um, and this isn't a question of fraud or anything like no, that. No. This, is a, this is a reality of the Korea line. Right? That's right, how how do you move forward? I mean, you want they actually are doing it for just as good reasons as some of the teachers do it. The teachers have the you know the well being of the students in mind, and the and the scientists have the well being of their own research in mind. They believe in their research, so that they, they take such a course um, for sure. And and I think another um, um, one of the explanations that you offer there is also it not being entirely clear to people. That uh, as as you say, this idea that communication research are intertwined, are are wedded, yeah. And as anyone who's uh, married or being married may know, um, wed <laughs> marriages have their high <laughs> points and low points, of course. And, and and they're always not necessarily the best of bedfellows, if I may carry on the <laughs> carry on the image. And and I think there is a I mean, resentment is clearly too strong a word, but there is certainly not a smooth uh, 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 um, relationship between every scientist and his or her writing and his or her communication act. There is, in some areas, a bit of conflict, a bit of concern. you can just carry on the list from there but i think what you 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 tell us makes it clear that they might be not necessarily recognizing their own advantage in communication um
0: well that's that- that's right and and i i actually did a um sorry to interrupt but i i actually did um, a you know a survey of several hundred um uh, scientists or members of scientific societies to get their views on some of these things and and some of the responses were really quite uh, illuminating. Uh, uh, when I asked about um, uh, people's views of, uh, uh, of science and, and hi- the hypothesis and what they thought about it, and whether they used it or not, um, it was interesting. At one point, at one of the survey questions uh, got the information that 75 percent of my respondents, several hundred people, said that they always or, or almost always uh, s- clearly stated their hypothesis in their papers. Well, then I did a, a literature search, about 160 or so papers, and I couldn't be sure it was from the same group, of course. Uh, nevertheless, the, the percentage of explicitly, the papers that explicitly state a hypothesis is about 20%. So there, there seemed to be a pretty good discrepancy uh, between those two numbers. Why? And this, this I partly explained by the existence of implicit hypotheses. But then at another point, I asked a question of if you, if you don't state a hypothesis, why not? And, and that was that was quite illuminating as well because uh, many people some people said, well, I just didn't think of it. Um, some people said, though, that, well, nobody else is doing it. Uh, so I, I really didn't want to. Or uh, another res- possible response was, well, I, I felt it would be pretentious to do that. It would be sort of artificial, as though I were setting myself up with some great idea or something. So there's a, there's a keen awareness of the social aspects, I would say, of, of publishing and communicating that can either facilitate or unfortunately inhibit uh, people's willingness and ability uh, to communicate. In addition to all of the uh, the educational problems we've talked about, I, I did a, a search of some of the educational literature and found that at least in the certainly, uh, actually probably in, in formal sense throughout our educational system, there, there really is no consistent coherent presentation of the basic ideas we've been talking about here—hypothesis, prediction, what it means to do science, what the goals of science are, the scientific method—in the lower grades, there is simply no consistency whatsoever that I could find in in uh, many of the textbooks, and this this carried through actually all the way through to uh, uh, even even the modern day uh, sort of college text levels, and so the lack of awareness of of the, uh, of the existence of, of a common way of thinking of, of something that would help unify us as science and make our science more communicable and and create maybe a different convention for communicating i found uh is really quite lacking and that's why i i turned to some of the gatekeeper agencies not only the reviewers of journals and uh, and editors of journals but also the reviewers at the national granting agencies because i can't um, it's just not clear to me how else we would uh, foster or inculcate a, a habit or the habits of rigorous scientific thinking uh, in, in any other way. I think the other sources are just too diffuse and there are too, other, too many other competing uh, uh, forces that are acting on uh, people like textbook publishers and uh, writers and, and so on in the educational system, it, at least in the U.S. as it stands today
1: yeah the educational side of things is definitely one of those areas that the book explores uh, again fruitfully because we see that there is need there uh, that will improve science by improving our education uh, system and making sure that even from early grades uh, but then definitely at university level uh, Courses and in, and in, in logic, as you say, courses and other things that aren't right now on the curriculum are being given. I think, though, one of the really interesting things that comes out of just that chapter that you were talking about, the the survey that you did, um, was the reliance in science education on mentorship and apprenticeship. That this idea that you learn next to somebody, as you would say in a trade, even, and w- what I've often thought is that. A a skill like scientific reasoning or a skill like writing, which, as I've been trying to say as I read the book, I I saw going hand in hand. Clearly, they don't overlap 100%, but um, the ability to express your problems in your lab notebook yourself that have occurred during an experiment rely as much on your reasoning skills as your ability to express that reasoning. And I think this apprenticeship and mentorship sort of... um, approach to uh, educating scientists has so much potential. It has already proven itself. And I think that the the step that educators would need to take would be less, which might occur to some people right now, okay, formal instruction in logic, formal instruction in X, Y, and Z. And it would be rather, in my opinion, facilitate the mentorship program so that these things also get, in some, let's say, semi-formal way, um, p- conveyed and passed on.
0: That, that, is, that is exactly right. And I think that's a very important point to mention from, from really two points of view. The, the mentorship, the apprenticeship program uh, really, really could work brilliantly well, but there is a there is a problem. There are two sorts of things that get communicated in the laboratory. One is the, the mechanical aspects of the pipetting or operating the machinery or, or doing the dissections and, and so on. And it turns out that, that apprenticeship is, is just a great way to do that. See, Watch, watch me and do it the way I do it. The, the problem that I encountered was that the other sort of apprenticeship, which I think, is, and I agree with you, is equally or perhaps more important even, which is the transmission of the ability to reason uh, scientifically, to think scientifically about your data, turns out to be very variable. Uh, I encountered a number of, I, I tell this story at the beginning of the book of the student who, uh, after several years of work, she was a great student, and I uh, taught her in the first year, but I was on her committee in her P, uh, PhD thesis several years later, and she was quite puzzled. She came to me with a question. I was on her committee, and she came to me with a question. She said, what's my hypothesis? Well, that really took me aback, and it, it made me think uh, about what we were doing as a faculty, uh, to communicate these very basic ideas, and at one point I was speaking with her uh, mentor, uh, and we were actually was a, a different student, um, and we were examining the student, asking him questions and so on about uh, his work, and I uh, referred to some of these things about the scientific hypothesis, and after a while, the mentor who was well known in science, published a number of papers in the very top journals, turned to me suddenly and said, "You know, I never learned any of that stuff." Well, so so. The problem with the mentorship system is that it depends on having mentors who not only are informed about some of these things, but are willing and able to take the time and communicate these things. Now, some are really great at that. And I've known a number of mentors who are uh, just outstanding at this. Their, stu- their list of students uh, you know, just fills all of the top faculties at Universities uh, across the world, really, it's not just the U.S. Um, so there are some mentors who, who do this brilliantly. They they work closely with their students. They work through the logic and the reasoning. They work with the papers. Um, other mentors, because perhaps they're not uh, personally set up that way, but also maybe because they don't know as much, uh, do a much poorer job. So I, I agree. I agree entirely with you that that would be an ideal way of doing it. What of doing it? What it concerns me is just. Uh, how how would we how do we go about uh, encouraging the, uh, the the development or the breadth of that uh, very important resource uh, for education?
1: Yeah. I mean, it will involve for sure a a sort of reevaluation, a sort of reevaluation that um, you're also calling for, for uh, negative results in papers, right? Negative findings that uh, unfortunately we seem to be stuck with this name, but there's nothing negative about them. And uh, mentorship, um, Nature Magazine, for instance, is just newly started last year offering a Mentor of the Year um, award. And I think these are the sorts of steps that need to happen so that Mm -hmm. Um, we see that the educational uh, remit of the PI or the professor is not to be taken lightly. Um, th- th- there's a book uh, just came out last year, um, Syllabus, about education, which, which I've interviewed on, and I'm going to paraphrase, but talking about education, they say, our work is about what we leave behind. Mm. And what you just said made me think of that quote because you said this person this mentor's students are situated at all the top research institutes and top universities right now think mm-hmm. of what that person has left behind for science
0: mm-hmm. 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 I- exactly right that's a they it, it, mentorship can have a huge influence and what you touched on is is really critical uh, and that is the way to recognize and reinforce it i, I mean it's not irrational if someone's uh, you know, scientists have to pay the rent, they have to buy groceries, they have to see their kids through schools and things like that. And if all of the rewards are solely dependent on the impact factor of the journal in which you publish your work, uh, well, it's, it's, again, it's not irrational for people to devote their attention to that. So we have to find ways of, of recognizing and rewarding uh, the ability of people to, to really uh, work with and pass on all of the skills of science Uh, which includes scientific thinking and reasoning, not just uh, doing experiments in the laboratory, developing the latest technique.
1: Well, Brad, um, you've been uh, very generous with your time. Uh, Thank you. I, I do have one last question, though. Um, The book was published last year, and as book publishing goes, uh, you're probably used to a different sort of pace when it came to the articles, the many articles that you've published in your science. Um, That probably means that you might have handed in the manuscript sometime in 2018, I'm thinking, if I'm not too far off.
0: The... Uh, That's a good question, but roughly, yes. Okay,
1: roughly. What I'm interested in asking, the reason I'm I'm not trying to pinpoint you on any dates here, don't worry. (laughs) What I'm trying to ask you is, um, what since then have you heard, read, whom have you met, um, whom have you talked to, where has the hypothesis come up since the publication of the book? (laughs)
0: <laughs> well, um, I've been I've been doing my best to uh, to to bring it up at every occasion. Um, uh, it was it was I'd say somewhat mixed success. I've in uh, maybe interested one or two uh, journal editors, uh, but there is a certain reluctance uh, because of lack of information and, and inertia uh, to changing right away. Um, I've tried to uh, broaden the the scope of this uh, outreach a little bit. I have a website. I have a a YouTube channel where I've, uh, I've published, uh, I put up, I think 20 something videos now on short topics or five or 10 minute videos on topics from the book. So, uh, I I'm aware that, uh, I'd, I'd like to, I'd like to get the message out. I'm looking for forums. I appreciate very much the opportunity that you provided, for example, to talk about some of these very important things. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, so I'm continuing to, to work away at it, uh, and, uh, we'll see how it goes.
1: Okay. Well, uh, listeners, you can find the link to some of those resources that uh, Brad has been working on since uh, down at the bottom of the page. Thank you very much again. That is Bradley Alger and his book, Defense of the Scientific Hypothesis from Reproducibility Crisis to Big Data is out with Oxford University Press. I'm Daniel Shea, and this is goodbye from me to Brad. Goodbye.
0: Uh, Goodbye, Daniel, and thanks very much. The pleasure has been all mine. I've really enjoyed it.
1: Great. And this is goodbye to all of you. Bye-bye. And until next time here on Scholarly Communication.